Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm Francis Seeley from BuildNet21 and Enfield Voices and this is one of the many podcasts that we do where we look at how people are making a difference in their locality through social action, through social enterprises and all sorts of different ways in which they are trying to improve the locality in which they live. But we also look at local authors, people who've written books, and sometimes that gives us ideas that we ourselves might want to write a book sometime, or develop our ideas and publish them in certain ways. And today we're interviewing Stephen Cox, who is a local author, and asking him about his book and his journey into publishing. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Anyhow, Stephen, welcome to this welcome. webinar. Thank you. And, you know, thank you for joining us. I mean, can I ask you, you've written this book that I mentioned, Our Child of the Stars, and we'll, we'll come to that. But first of all, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Well, although I was born in America, I came to Bristol um, when I was two years old, and I've lived all over the south of England, and I've been living in London since 1997. I work in communications. So for 12 years, I worked for Great Ormond Street Hospital. I ran their communications department. And so I've got, um, you know, I've always been interested in books. I've always been interested in um, what goes on in the world. I've been interested in people. And so all those things flow into the book, really. Okay, so, you know, you've written the book, but tell me, have you always been a writer? And how did you get into writing in the first place? Well, I think... Um, firstly, I've always wanted to be a writer, but wanting to be a writer doesn't get you very far. You actually have to do it. Um, I've always been very, very bookish. I remember going to the library and taking out five books a week um, once I was old enough to walk to the library on my own. Um, I've experimented with writing short stories and poetry over the years, but I had, was lucky enough to go on sabbatical in 2012. And I sat down to write something I'd been thinking about, and that turned into a novel. Not a novel that's been successful. Uh, that's got any sort of publication but that was um, showed me that I was interested in writing to that length and that complexity and while I was working on that I had a side project which was the Our Child of the Stars and it's um, yeah I just I got the bug really I hadn't I had thought vaguely about writing a novel but not done anything about it for about 20 years I suppose um, so this is getting a childhood dream uh, it's quite a long way from childhood really. I mean, if, if you're an aspiring young writer, as you were, I mean, how, I mean, what advice would you give? How do you get into writing? I mean, is it something you can do sporadically or do you have to have a discipline? I mean, what's the process of writing? Well, there are two sides to that. The first thing is, is that if you want to get into writing, you should write. You should experiment. You should experiment with form. You should read a lot, see what you like, what you don't like. Once you set down to write a particular project is you do need discipline. A lot of people try and write every day um, or have a routine that the weekends are given over to writing, something that enables you to keep at, at it, keep practicing, keep better. And obviously if you're writing something long like a novel, you have to do that over a lengthy period of time. Um, exactly what discipline works for you doesn't, it's going to vary from person to person. But I think if somebody's thinking about becoming a writer, they should actually you know, start by writing and seeing what, and, and 
in time showing it to other people and getting valid criticism and so forth because actually just simply hanging around vaguely thinking you'll do it one day won't get you anywhere so it's a bit like keeping fit you can't do it one day and then leave it you've got to uh, continue and you've got to have that discipline i mean does it help to work with other writers and to be in a writing group as well i gather you belong to the green writers um writers group or is it the green bookshop writers group um, i mean did that help you and is that something you would recommend to other writers to get involved with that community to get some sort of self-help there are a whole series of yeah this whole series of things that a good writing group will do for you um and you can do some of this online um firstly writing is quite odd i mean you go and sit in sit with your laptop and um make things up for a year at a time so actually it's good to get out and talk to other people who face similar problems um so the friendship you can make in the group is important you also eventually are going to have to show your work to somebody if you want to publish it or if you want to know if it's any good you have to show it to other people and not only does the group help you by giving you feedback but they also help you understand how variable people's responses are to what you write and you have to get a sort of curious combination of um being able to assimilate and understand the criticism and some what of it is valid and what of it isn't so a good group will help you in terms of your craft a good group will help you in terms of dealing with a slightly odd aspect of it being such a solitary process and also um there are places where you could, um, the group i went to the big green bookshop writing group which is currently homeless because that bookshop uh, has closed but it's still running um the there's something about encouraging you to push yourself and to find out about the industry and to be, you know, go to networking events and so forth. And, and being able to do that with other people from the, who you know already is really helpful um, in just getting to grips with the industry and how you would go about getting a book published if that's what you wanted. I mean, book uh, writing groups do vary. I mean, some of them are better than others, but any writing group ought to be encouraging you to write, which is of itself a good thing. And when you actually write, do you write to a plan? Do you know what the end is going to be? Or do you start writing not knowing what the end is going yes. to be and you make it up as you go along? Um, so there's, there's a great debate about this within writing. And the quick answer is different writers do it in different ways. What I like to do is to be very clear who the main characters are, where they start in the book, where they finish up in the book, and the sorts of things that are going to stop them getting what they want, what the challenges are. So I start with a plan, but it's not a chapter by chapter plan. It's not a scene by scene plan, but it's a kind, it's a bit more than a back of an envelope. It's about the side of A4. And I start writing on that. And then I refine the plan as I write the book and I flip between planning and writing. Um, there are people, Stephen King is one, who sit down and write the book and don't have a plan at all. And there are people who plot it out much more than I do. So I sit somewhere in the middle. And when you write, do you write for yourself or do you write to get published? So I started writing, my first novel I wrote because I wanted to write it and I thought it was quite good. Um, it probably isn't good enough to, to get published. Um, now I am writing, I have, have a book out, I have a sequel to that book that I need to write. You know, the being published thing is in the back of my head. But I think you have to write something that you believe in. You have to write something that's true to your vision for the book. Um, and I have a sort of archetypal reader in mind, who's probably my sister-in-law, I think, because um, I'm very 
close to her in terms of my interests. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, there's no doubt that if you want to get published, you have to at least think about what that involves. Um, but on the other hand, there's no point writing something you don't want to write because you think it will be published because people can probably spot that. But of course, as you said, you, you, you would like to get it published. So how do you go about doing that? I mean, what advice would you give? I mean, is yours published through a, a main um, book company or do you self-publish? Um, what advice would you give? Do you go, which, yeah. which avenue do you go down? So, so the, broadly, there are three main ways you can get, three main ways you can get published. You can go to a traditional commercial publisher which normally means you have to approach them through an agent, though some of the smaller ones take submissions directly. Um, you can publish it yourself, which can be very, a very good way of doing it. Um, and there's actually now a crowdfunded option where effectively you get people you know to pay for you to produce the book. And they all have pros and cons. I wanted to try for traditional publishing because fairly or not, it has a cachet to it. And a lot of people assume that self-publishing is because it's not very good. And also because I wanted to spend time writing and not have to worry about, you know, finding a good cover designer and things like that. And people do self-publish that I know who are very good at it. And they, um, they, they invest in it. They, they produce a high quality product. So it's not that there's inherently anything wrong in self-publishing. The problem you get is there's a long tail of books that have been published that aren't you know, aren't properly proofread or, um, you know, very, very weak, as most people would read them and say they're very weakly written. So, you know, that is a problem, but there are people who write very good books and self-publish. So I've made a conscious choice. And of course you can choose to be traditionally published only if you get somebody to do it. So I got an agent and I got an agent by writing to agents in the way that you're supposed to. And one of them liked the book enough that he took me on and represented me. And then he, Work with me on the book because it needed some uh, planning. It needed some. It needed some honing down. And then the agent does the hard work of actually selling the book. When he got uh, um, a publisher interested, and that was uh, so. That that's the sort of traditional route, and it worked for me. Okay, so you it worked for you. You got your book, your book published. It's called Our Child of the Stars. What was the inspiration be, behind that book in the first place? I mean, I think it began in 2013 as a short story, didn't it? Yes. So I actually was reading Ray Bradbury, who's a writer I, I like, who writes stuff that's a bit nostalgic and a bit strange stuff happens in the shadows and it's quite charming. And I thought I'd write a short story based a bit on that. And then all sorts of things came together. So in one sense, the inspiration for the book, because it's a book about a couple who adopt a child who's very different, was my own experience being a parent and how being a parent changes everything. Everyone tells you what it's like to be a parent, but actually living through it is different. Um, all sorts of other things started to flow into it. So I think that the, the initial inspiration, the story that came out in that sort of week I wrote it, was had the main three characters and I started to see, you know, where, where had they come from? Where were they going to? And I started to get a sense that there was a whole book in it, which was quite exciting, really. And why did you choose science fiction as your sort of genre of writing? I think that um, the first, I mean, the most important thing to say about the book is it's been, I spent a lot of time and effort trying to make it as accessible as possible. So, for example, it's a book which um, lots of people who don't read science fiction have enjoyed. Um, 
I've I've read science fiction on and off since I was about ten. Um, I think that all fiction is uses metaphor, and science fiction is just doing that in a different way. And I think it allows you to you can some ways cast a more penetrating mirror on the way things really are by using a bit of sleight of hand and bringing other things in. So science fiction is normally talking about the current day, whatever else it pretends it's talking about. And in the same way, I thought it's quite interesting that because it's set in the 1960s, the more I wrote it, the more it seemed not to be talking about the 1960s at all. It seems to be talking about our current day and the problems, the problems we face socially and politically and so forth. Um, so uh, it was just, it came as a jeu d'esprit, it came as a nice idea for a short story, but there's lots of other things you're able to do with it. And I think what's been quite interesting about the, the whole genre question is the science fiction world has broadly said, this is a science fiction novel that has chosen to put a lot of emphasis on the character and the relationships of the people in it. And broadly, we think that's good, or at least a perfectly valid choice to make for a science fiction book. And quite a lot of people who never read science fiction who read it think it's really good. So um, I've succeeded in broadening my audience, which is what I wanted. Okay. And you, you mentioned you chose 1960s as the decade mm -hmm. environment for the book. Was there any reason for that? I mean, the 1960s was a, a decade that was tumultuous. There was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of violence. But a bit like today, in, in some respects, um, did you sort of see those two you know, epochs yeah. having similarities. Yes, and the more I wrote in the 1960s, the more the the more the, the similarities became obvious. I mean, it's easy to sort of be nostalgic about the dress and the, you know, the the way people dress and sense of freedom and you know all these the social movements that we somewhat take for granted and all the successes that they had. And there were also there was also a big downside to the 60s. Um, and you know there were, there was a long, bloody, and ultimately unwinnable war in Vietnam. And I have to say, when you're writing about a dishonest president fighting wars uh, overseas that they can't actually win for very dubious reasons, I mean, obviously that also seems to speak to our present day as well. So I think that um, there was a very strong sense for me that uh, although it was set in the 60s and, you know, I enjoyed playing with the nostalgia and the fact there were pay phones, you had to put coins in and things like that. Um, you know, it is it is talking about things that people can relate to now. It's talking about the problems you have being a parent, and you're talking about the um, big global issues. And, and when you actually wrote it, I mean, you, you, you mentioned you, you know, some of the things about why you wrote it, but did you write it just because you wanted to tell a story or did you have a specific message you wanted to get across? I think yeah. you mentioned once that you wanted to get a message across about conquering suspicion. Sorry, conquering? Suspicion. Um, yeah, well, that's one way of putting about it. I mean, I think, I think if you sit down and say, I am going to write a book to lecture people about something, that doesn't tend to produce very good books. So when I was a kid, I used to read the C.S. Lewis books, um, the Narnia books, and I could spot when he got on his high horse and started lecturing, lecturing me, as, even as an eight or 10-year-old. I wanted to write a story that was entertaining and had a plot and characters you were interested in and made you care about the people and at the end of the day, it ends in a position which is interesting. Um, 
And yes, I mean, one of the things about some of the issues that are brought up is that I do try and show both sides of the issues. So the main antagonist, for example, you may not like him very much. He's not written to be likable. Um, you may not agree with him, but at least you know why he's doing what he's doing. And you also see he's a complicated, messy human being like we all are. So um, I think that it is about trying to see the good in people, which is often very difficult. And um, a part of that is that the couple, Jean and Molly, actually end up relying on some people who are quite different from them in terms of their politics and their religion and their you know, people who would, you would naturally assume would not be on their side. So it's partly about trying to look for, for, for good in people. Um, but I think um, I wouldn't want people to think it's a preachy book because I think that um, I think preachy books are generally quite poor. Yeah, I, I understand that and I, I probably would agree with that. Um, but you say it's about two people, Molly and Jean, and their relationship in the 1960s. And what happens, I believe, is they live in this, uh, this uh, frenetic world um, and tragedy strikes them when the meteor, meteor crashes into a New England town and they find a small boy called Kari yeah. who they adopt. And is that the sort of basis of your story? Yes, I mean, that's the, the tagline is it's about a couple who adopt an alien because it's fairly obvious that's what he is. And they have to keep him secret from the government because the government's very interested in him. In, in him. Um, they have to pretend he's dead and keep him secret. And that's um, a story that has resonances from all sorts of all sorts of traditions, all sorts of places. Um, it works because of the characters the characters work it works because i'm very interested in having worked at great ormond street the way that people can judge by appearances and Corey does look very very odd or you know he's capable of communicating he's very likable and very engaging and very interested in the earth um but you know there's a thing about we judge worth by how people look and we don't like people who look different from us and all those sort of things that i wanted to explore and also, as I say, one of, the, one of the things I wanted to explore is the way that having children allows you to relive things like Christmas and Halloween that you've probably stopped being interested in. Um, but there's more to that because Corey has come in chaos and disaster. Why is he there? Um, what, hap what else is behind going on behind it? So that sort of big filmic plot is going on as well. Um, but it's a... Um, Yes, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's trying to be both, and, and I'd submit most people seem to think it is, it's trying to be a family drama about the dynamics of, of doing that and also um, tackle some of the other issues as well. So is it the fact that Corey's an alien and it's about how you try and get a relationship with the unknown and engage yes. with the unknown and yes. have trust in the unknown and also find that there's a, a lot of people who don't have that trust and who actually want to destroy something which is, which is a mystery to them? There's, there's partly that and there's partly this thing about using people as, um, using people as things, um, you know, that there are people who want to find Corey with no intention of doing him any harm. They, they, they want to use him in the battle between the USSR and the USA. They think he gives them, you know, understanding him and his technology will help them in the Cold War. They uh, want to be sure that any scientific advances are to their benefit. There are people who want him because it will advance their career. Um, the officialdom don't want to kill him or even for him to, 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 to harm him but they do want to use him 
and Molly and Jean don't want to use him. They want to love him. So that's one of the things underneath it. And it does, you know, it does, I mean, I get to show a town that's suffered uh, a catastrophe, putting itself back together. And um, it is a time of great, a great division, great social division. Uh, people forget that one of the things that happened in the 60s was that Richard Nixon um, got elected and then subsequently re-elected. Uh, there was a lot of concern about how fast things were going and whether the people were losing control and so forth. And I try and be sympathetic to both, both sides of that argument. Um, so, so it's a sort of, in a way, it's an allegorical tale about a, a terrifying decade um, a tragic incident and the reaction to that is either fear or love? Well, I mean, I mean, we all have complicated things, don't we? I think, I think there are, I mean, there are people, people's character comes out in conditions of great stress and we, we get to understand Molly enough to know that she does something that's pretty weird, uh, was pretty extreme, which is to, you know, basically save this child and keep them, him away from the authorities. Um, but people are put in that situation and have to do some very extreme things. Um, and it shows that it's not, it's not brilliant for them because they start to look, the adults start to look around the corner. They don't know whether to trust everybody um, anymore and all that sort of thing. Um, so there's a lot in it. I mean, it, it deals with a lot of issues. It deals with bereavement. It deals with um, war and peace. It deals with, uh, can you trust the government? Uh, to protect the rights of the individual, um, but in the co in, in 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 a story, uh, which I, I think I probably laboured the point, um, but it's not a sermon. Yeah, I, I think I read in one one review that um, in a way you're trying to highlight the dark side of life, whilst at the same time showing that can be confronted by both hope and humour. Yeah, I think I think hope is really important. I mean, we've talked about. Why, why, why write a, why write a book in these current times? Um, and I think one of the things that lots of people take from it is that it's a work which does give us hope that human beings can be decent, that we can work together to solve our problems. Um, it doesn't do that in a slushy way, uh, but it does it does remind us that sometimes we are able to transcend our initial suspicions of each other and so forth. And I think um, there's a tendency for a lot of literature, literature at the moment to be one of two things. One of which is incredibly grim. So a lot, there's a lot of science fiction and fantasy in which everybody is rotten. Um, lots of people die. Um, there's very little hope or, or, or love or anything in, in it. And that's very much, Game of Thrones is probably the best known example. Now that's a taste if people want to read that sort of stuff, then obviously they should be free to do so. And the other side of it is stuff which I would say is completely escapist, where nothing horrible happens, where everything is stitched up, where it's all hearts and flowers. And I think that's, again, if somebody wants to read that, they should. But I think I, I wanted to write a book that actually talks about how things actually are. Um, in terms of the horrible things that happen, the unfair things that happen, but actually also gave us hope because that's, I think, where we need to be. Because there's no doubt in my mind that all the problems we face, if we lose hope, we're not going to get anything. Hope is what gives us energy to do something about them. Which makes me ask, I gather you're a Quaker and has that yeah. faith, I mean, what you just said now is interesting in relation to that, but has that faith, your Quaker faith, affected the way you wrote that book? I think that um, I think that a, a couple of people asked me, so is this going to be a Quaker book? Is it going to be about Quakers? And I thought that was not 
particularly interesting. Um, I think that Quakers talk about trying to see that of good, or some people say that of God in everyone. They, however bad somebody is, you do at least acknowledge the possibility of redemption and change. So that's very much in the book. Um, most, what most people say, most Quakers have read it, say this book is very Quaker, even though it never uses the word and nobody in the book is a Quaker. Well, one very minor character is a Quaker, but you have to guess that, it doesn't say that. Um, I mean, I think you bring your worldview to a book and your book will tell you something about your worldview. Uh, and it's, um, there's a certain amount of discussion of Jean and Molly have both abandoned their religion and are, um, in Jean's case, very happy about that. And in Molly's case, she occasionally has, you know, vague hankerings. Um, but that's not a setup for her to become a Quaker in the second book or anything. Um, I think, I think you always bring your, I think the, the quick answer to your question is, yes, I understood as I wrote the book that it was starting to, 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 to speak to some of the Quaker values, but um, it was never set out to be a sermon. Okay, well, you're going to read a, an extract in a sec, but before you do, if people want to get the book, where do they get it or how do they get in touch with you? Right, well, the quick answer is Waterstones and Enfield stock it. Um, it's available through all, my, all normal bookshops. Uh, and if they don't actually have it when you go in, pretty much any sensible bookshop can order it. Um, I have a website, which is stephencox.co.uk, and people can contact me via that if they want to. But broadly, it's in Enfield Library and it's in Enfield Waterstones, so it's not a difficult book to get hold of. Okay, well, you're going to read an extract now, but Joe Cowley-Smith has written that she's read the book already and she thoroughly enjoyed it. She said, my young daughter is reading it now and she's enjoying it too. It's easy to read and it will appeal to, to, to everyone. So she said, thank you for doing it. Um, anyhow, if you'd like to do the extract and then we'll finish the webinar when you finish the extract. It's only going to be about five minutes. Yeah. Um, so before you start, let me say thank you for doing this, uh, Stephen. Mm -hmm. It's been a great interview and I wish your book every success because clearly mm -hmm. it's, it's a book which is going to be interesting to a lot of people. So thank you. And let's hear your, your, your extract now. Thank you very much. So what I, I, don't, I don't want to give a lot of context, but this is basically the scene in which Jean and Molly um, are courting and um it gives you it's the, the book opens in the middle of act, in the middle of the situation where they're hiding the hiding the child cory and then i flip back and explain how they've got there so to do that i write about their courtship winter held amber grove in talons of ice sketching fairy wings on every tree molly and jean came out of the cinema where she'd sniggered through the space film he'd chosen his feelings be damned he'd snorted and sighed Cold air burned her throat now, but his familiar arm was warm around her shoulders. I've seen kids in the road make up a better story than that, she said, smiling. Okay, sorry, that was garbage. Let's go skating, Jean said. They walked the length of Main Street, past City Hall, past shops to close for the evening, and one heaving bar until they came to the park. The pond had frozen deep and solid, and many people had thought of skating too. They queued to hire the skates in the wooden hut that sold ice creams in summer. They'd been Jean and Molly for six months. They'd first met in a basement, painting signs for the demonstration. Jean walking into a room of people, moved like he'd just rented his body and didn't quite have the hang of it. He was handsome, though. His faded, faded clothes were behind the times, and he looked away when their eyes met. 
but throughout that evening, she'd often seen him gazing at her. Maybe he thought that her mouth was too wide. Maybe he'd spotted her only vanity, the popular bottle which kept her hair the golden blonde she'd been at five. They lived under the shadow of the bomb, but they believed that the times were a-changing. Gene and Molly hitched across the state to hear the singers and bands they both loved, whose music was not just beautiful, but meant something profound. They'd marched against unjust laws, against the vicious, stupid war and the draft that fed it, against the horrendous weapons that threatened all life on land or sea or sky. But Gene and Molly argued endlessly too. A trip to New York City revealed his indifference to real art like painting and sculpture. He hated to be in the endless photos she took of everything. Meanwhile, he couldn't believe she was no, so quick to sneer at the bands, taking risks and breaking new ground. They had been on other dates, but this one felt special. On the pond, people swooped, trailing the white memory of their breath, laughing and shouting as they bumped into each other. Some walked on the ice like newborn foals. Molly saw a teenager take a tumble and heard a so-called friend cheer. Jean was all legs and arms, so skating might be embarrassing. I haven't done this for years, Molly said, taking a few hobbled steps to the edge. He held her hand so he, she could step safely onto the ice. Like riding a bike, you couldn't forget. And he zigged and zagged away, competent and picking up speed. And she accepted the dare, beginning the chase and gaining confidence as her body remembered. How different his movements were now. Even when he was showing off, she forgave him. He grinned as he caught up. The creek behind the farm froze every year. She thought, a man who can skate can learn to dance. Above them, the moon was almost full, hallowed with ice. Soon she'd taste his mouth and he'd taste hers, familiar and exciting all at once. Out on the pond, a dark-haired mother was helping a little girl of perhaps six. The woman held the girl's hands in hers, her face shining with encouragement. The girl looked down at her feet and up at her mother. Hope balanced. Molly wished she'd brought her camera to capture the moment. Jean smiled. He often smiled at children. He wanted a family too. Already, something burned in her heart. Please, please, please. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. That was great. Uh, so thank you for doing this. And, um, you know, I hope it uh, goes from success to success. Anyhow, we'll end this uh, webinar now. Thank mm -hmm. you.